Hello, and welcome back to the Self-Healer Soundboard, How to Do the Work Masterclass. Last week, we continued to explore the impact of our childhood on our current life, namely through the power of the beliefs that we hold in our subconscious mind. Many of these beliefs were formed around the experiences of our inner child that lives within each of our adult selves. This episode, Jenna and I will dive into Chapter 7 of How to Do the Work, Meet Your Inner Child. Hello, everyone. Before we dive in today, I want to remind everyone listening that we just had an open enrollment for our self-healers circle, our private online healing community. Enrollment is now closed. However, enrollment will open again in a few months. Head to theholisticpsychologist.com and sign up for our waitlist. All right, now let's dive in a bit deeper to the inner child. In How to Do the Work, you break down Chapter 7, Meet Your Inner Child. What exactly is your inner child? The inner child is a subconscious part of our mind that carries the emotions, the memories, and the experiences from our childhood. It is a space that's naturally free. It's filled with creativity and is where we can connect to our intuition, the place that so many of us are so disconnected from. Our inner child is impacted primarily in our childhood from our earliest relationships or our attachments. Attachments are really just a deep and enduring bond between two people. In childhood, our attachments are so incredibly important because they're the way we get our needs met, our physical needs, our emotional needs, our social needs, our spiritual needs. In childhood, it is incredibly important that we feel safe, safe not only to express those needs and have them met, but safe to express ourselves, who we are, our thoughts, our beliefs, that essence, just who we are in the world. When we don't feel that safety, so many of us carry the wounding into our adult lives. Now, based on patterns you've seen in the collective, you've come up with seven inner child archetypes. We're going to dive deeper into each of these archetypes here. And if you'd like to follow along in the book, How to Do the Work, these are listed for you on page 129. These archetypes, Jenna, are, are really just consistent patterns, patterns that we can see in our daily habits and namely patterns that we see in our relationships. And what these patterns are born from or where they come from is, again, that deeper wounding, the time and spaces in our childhood where consistently we were left with unmet needs. We were left with unmet physical needs, maybe some of us unmet emotional needs, and maybe some of us didn't feel we had the space to express from our soul or from our essence who we are. When those needs go consistently unmet, we begin to adapt or we modify how we show up in the world. So what these following archetypes represent are those very general ways of being. Again, these are formed from consistent experiences in childhood, not just the one-offs. So any parents out there listening, of course, there's a day and a time where we don't show up as our shiniest. This is when these things happen consistently. Also, there's many times where we see aspects of ourselves in more than one of these archetypes. So what are these patterns that we're talking about? The first one is the caretaker. This caretaker, this person, gains a sense of identity or worth by putting everyone else first, everyone else's needs first. By doing that, by meeting other people's needs, that person gets to feel good about themselves. This caretaker believes on some level that the only way to receive love is to put others first and their needs last. We've noticed based on everyone's comments and feedbacks that the caretaker archetype is by far the most common inner child archetype. 
An example of this is a mother figure or a parent figure whose sole concern is everyone else in the family. All of their thinking about is how to meet the needs of others, to care for others in the family, to the point that this person, the mother or parent figure, then neglects themselves and their own needs. The process of this self-neglect, or quite literally, abandonment of the self, then shows up as burnout or this continuous growing resentment. The next archetype is the overachiever. This person feels seen, heard, and valued through success and achievement. This can be in school, in a career, in relationships, really everywhere we can see this tendency. This person uses external validation to cope with a low self-worth. We feel good when we receive that external validation. The overachiever believes that the only way to receive love is through achievement. So I am a prime example of this archetype, whether it was in school where I sought to get that perfect score that, of course, was celebrated in my family, whether it was in my downtime, if I'm honest, and Jenna knows this to be true about me, I don't like to play games if I don't think I'm going to win. I also see this in my relationships. I see myself holding myself up to this standard um, of achievement, of always wanting to be the best um, partner, friend, or whatever it might be. And again, this comes from that low self-worth, this idea that from my childhood, which was the case for me, I felt very seen. I felt very loved when I brought home those A's, when I succeeded at softball, the sport I was the best at. And of course, this then trickled into my relationships. When I was the child who didn't cause problems in my home, I got that deep sense of validation that I was missing. A lot of us have this overachievement. And again, it really can span all different aspects of our life. It's not just in the traditional sense that many of us think in terms of school. On the other side of the overachiever archetype is an archetype called the underachiever. This person keeps themselves small, unseen, or beneath their potential, usually, of course, due to a fear of criticism or shame around failure. This person often also keeps themselves emotionally distant or separate from others in relationships, believing that the only way to receive love is to stay invisible or to have minimal impact on the world around. Now, an example of someone who is this archetype, the underachiever, is someone who's been criticized a lot in childhood and feels that it's safest to be unseen or really to not even try. The less you do, the less you'll be noticed, so the safer that you are. This is a person who people say, quote, doesn't live up to their potential. And the reason for this, quote, not living up to their potential is really coming from a fear-based place within themselves. They could have so much talent and they just don't feel worthy of revealing those talents to the world. They don't feel safe to reveal those talents to the world. Now, this may also show up as a personal fear of not living up to one's own potential. So maybe you're not someone who is constantly told you're not living up to your potential. Or for me personally, it came from my own personal fear of myself not living up to my own potential. So the opposite of Nicole, the overachiever archetype, I resonate most with the underachiever archetype and I'm still in the process of reparenting myself to feel more confident, worthy, and safe to really come out of my shell, to have little Jenna come out of her shell and share her impact and her full self-expression with the world. Thank you for sharing that, Jen. Another archetype is what we call the rescuer or the protector. This is a person who essentially attempts to rescue or to heal or to save those around them. They might unconsciously and sometimes even consciously view others as helpless, incapable, or dependent. This person derives, again, their self-love and their self-worth from being in this helper position, a position of power of sorts. 
And they believe that the only way to receive love is to help others by focusing on their wants, their needs, their problems. So this person themselves feels very helpless in childhood and was likely left to emotionally, physically, and spiritually fend for themselves. And as a result, they often have a view of other people as also helpless. So if you felt helpless as a child, then how could you see others as anything different other than helpless themselves? This helplessness gives them a sense of power to be in the position to help someone else who's quote, more helpless than themselves. So a rescuer or protector is going to assume the position of coming in to rescue or protect someone that they deem is more helpless than they are. Another archetype we'll call the life of the party. This person is usually happy, cheerful, maybe even funny. They rarely show pain, weakness, or a vulnerability. They are someone who typically avoids these, what we sometimes call, quote unquote, negative feelings, sometimes even feelings in general, usually as a result of past experiences where showing those feelings resulted in shame. This is a person who believes that the only way to receive love is to make sure everyone around them is happy. Now, this is someone who had their emotions dismissed as a child. They may have heard things like, it wasn't a big deal, toughen up, be a man, it wasn't that bad, etc. This person then adopts a personality or a mask that they're just always happy and fine and that their role is to be that happy, fun person for others. The yes person. This is a person who drops everything and neglects most of their needs, if not all of them, fully in the service of someone else. They likely engage in consistent self-sacrifice and again, those codependent relationships dynamics, getting our needs met through someone else's being met. This is a person who believes that the only way to receive love is to be quote unquote good or quote unquote selfless. This is a person whose needs were neglected throughout childhood. So the only way for them to really be seen was to please others around them. The final archetype that we'll explore here is called the hero worshiper. This person prefers to have another person of course, external to them, maybe even a book or a guru, someone or something else to follow. This can also be someone who views their past or their caregivers in particular as superhuman without fault, those rose-colored glasses where everything is ideal and nothing less than ideal has ever happened. This is a person who believes that the only way to receive love is to reject their own wants or needs in favor of what someone else believes or what worked for someone else. Essentially, to be loved by being and acting exactly like those who you love. When we learn as children to not trust ourselves, we begin a pattern of outsourcing our knowing to everyone else around us. This looks like a person who goes to everyone but themselves that they know for advice, who often procrastinates or is afraid of making the wrong decision. They depend on a core person in their life or what they may view as a guru to model for them how they should experience their own life. They're constantly seeking that person's approval or saying and doing things to please them. After hearing these archetypes, a lot of you listening might be able to immediately pick out the ones that resonate. Those of you who don't can spend some time witnessing yourself, namely witness how you show up in relationships to see which of these patterns might reflect your current experiences. What is really important and really the foundational or the first step of inner child work, in my opinion, is for each of us to acknowledge that we do have an inner child. We have a space that many of us can't yet access that is filled with creativity, 
is filled with wonder and is the place of our intuition. It's not that that space doesn't exist for those of you out there who maybe haven't reconnected with that space in some time. It's that so many of us are disconnected due to these habits and patterns and due to the trauma and the dysregulation that many of us did experience in our childhood. So the first step of the work, again, is to compassionately acknowledge that the inner child is within each of us. And now the journey is, of course, finding our way back to reconnect with that deepest space. A really powerful exercise that you can practice is writing letters to your inner child. While it may feel out of reach, this is a really important and simple practice to begin reconnecting with that inner child that has always already been inside of you. Now, when I first began practicing inner child work myself, I would write a letter each night to little Jenna that I would then read first thing in the morning the next day, beginning the day with acknowledging her presence quite literally and reminding her how seen, how loved, and how safe she was. So every night I would sit down at my desk. I'd it was on the back of my to-do list. I'd make my to-do list the next day, and then I'd write, I'd, Dear Little Jenna, I'd add markers, I'd color it, I'd make this an exciting thing. I'm 34, and this is what I would do now as an adult. And I would quite literally just write to little me, knowing that the next morning I'd wake up, part of my routine, the first thing I would do was then go to that letter from wise wise parent Jenna, writing to little Jenna, literally starting her day saying, you're loved, you're seen, I love you, you're going to have a wonderful day. Getting into this practice then made it kind of fun. I did start to decorate, I started to color, I started to do other things that little Jenna really loved doing to really foster and nurture that connection with her. Now, if you'd like to begin this practice or you want some structure and you don't really know where to start, we've got you covered. There are some instructions and outlines for how to start writing letters to your inner child that are outlined in the book, How to Do the Work, on page 135. Those of you who prefer a guided meditation can also check out our website, The Holistic Psychologist, where we have a guided inner child meditation um, where I will take you through an exploration of your past. Um, for some of us, that vulnerability of even imagining that we have a little child is where, you know, our aversion comes, where we want to run away. We want to, you know, not go back to that past. And it's very natural not to want to revisit things that are, of course, painful. So a lot of people can gain benefit in doing so through a guided meditation, a safe space where slowly and gradually you can begin to reconnect with that childlike space within. So shifting gears, we have two questions coming in for those of us out there who are already beginning inner child work. Our first question coming in from Sarah in New Jersey. Hi, this is Sarah from New Jersey, and my question is, what would you say to someone who's aware of the work that it would require to parent your inner child, but is more so grappling with knowing the work that's required and in the moment of feeling really low and wanting to feel seen, heard, and understood, really more so wanting that from a parental figure. So really just grappling both, uh, both sides. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for your question. This is really a great one and a common one because so many of us find about our inner child and reparenting and all of this work and we can get 
really, really overwhelmed. So when we start looking back to our childhood, all of our adult patterns, all of the things that we'd wished that we'd had from our parents, and the knowing that we didn't have these things from our parents, that in itself can really be overwhelming. It also can be kind of a period of of grieving, of that wanting and realizing, oh, I didn't have those things that maybe you didn't know you, you didn't have. Now, I want to give you a huge reminder to anyone listening that this really is about being very, very kind to yourself as you go through the process. As Nicole mentioned before, this is really a time to be compassionate with yourself, with your adult self, and with your inner child. Wherever you weren't seen, heard, or honored as a small child is now your opportunity and really your responsibility to now honor that as an adult and give that time, give that seeing, that hearing, that honoring to yourself. Now, this might look like putting yourself to bed early, taking a short walk, or writing a short letter to your inner child and telling them that you'll keep them safe. For me this morning, this literally looked like taking a bubble bath, putting on headphones, and listening to music that really brought me back to to a time that little Jenna remembered that was joyful for me. Now, you want to take small baby steps in this process and have self-compassion all along the way as you're taking these small moments and allow all of the emotions that come up as you do this. Emotions are going to come up. I mentioned earlier, sometimes this overwhelm can almost feel like a grieving, which means there's going to be a flood of emotions. Just allow them to rise and allow them to be. And in that moment, that, that is the work of inner child healing. So what Jenna's saying, when we do feel that grief, when we do have that part of ourself that wishes our parents were different, that's the work in that moment. So Sarah and anyone else out there with a similar question, when we do inner child work, we also want to tend to the grief, to the sadness, to the anger, maybe even rage that comes up when we bear witness to the needs that were unmet by our caregivers, by our loved ones around us, by our maybe even macro societies, that can bring up a lot. And for a lot of us, that is the healing, allowing those feelings to be what they are, not to criticize them, not to argue yourself out of them, to learn how to compassionately be with them. For me, I found that's the most impactful part of my healing, to allow my reality, my feelings about my reality, to be valid, as opposed to what I historically used to do, explain them away, come up with all of the reasons and all of the understanding why things were that the way that they were, as opposed to just creating space for how I feel about the way things were. So Sarah and anyone else out there on the inner child journey of reparenting, sometimes that's the work, to be with the grief, to be with the anger, to just be with your inner child in a compassionate, understanding way. Next question comes from Lisa in Denver. Hi, my name is Lisa and I'm calling from Denver, Colorado. I am a mom of two young children and I've done some inner child work with my therapist many years ago before children and experienced such wonderful growth in my reactive, fearful young self. But then kids came along and it feels like my younger, fearful self is coming out in strong reactions to my children. I have reincorporated some checking in with my inner child through my journaling and meditation practice to see what is triggering her fear. And it actually seems really difficult to connect with her right now. I, of course, do not want these strong reactions to my children. It is taking me to a very low emotional vibration of sadness and regret. And I'm wondering how to connect and care for my inner child while also caring for two young children. Thank you all so much for everything that you are doing. 
for the collective. We are all so very grateful. Thank you. Lisa, I want to acknowledge first your ability and your awareness of that underlying fear, that reaction that you're having. It is so incredibly important when any of us as parents out there are having a fear-based reaction to do the work to cultivate safety, particularly in your own nervous system, so that you can be a regulated safe base for your child. So here's where I answer. I think the question that probably, or the answer that frustrates the parents out there, it's not actually what can I say or do to or for my child in that moment, it's what can I do for myself? And whenever our nervous system is activated, we become unsafe, to, to put it one way, for the, even the children around us. So when we're having that fear-driven reaction, the work for the parents listening is actually to model self-care, to model emotional regulation, to go do those deep belly breaths, to bring their own nervous system back into balance. As I wrote in the book, How to Do the Work, the parent's main goal is to act as a secure base and a non-judgmental guide that allows the child to experience the natural consequences of their actions and lays the foundation for self-trust. So the work here is first regulating a dysregulated nervous system, taking the moment to come back into balance for Lisa listening and any other parents. Then of course, as Lisa's been doing, beginning to explore what are the narratives that come up? Where might this fear be coming from? That is the inner child work as a parent, as we parent those around us. We're actually, again, focusing on ourselves, focusing on how can I meet my needs? How can I bring my dysregulated nervous system back into balance, which might mean taking a moment away from our children so that when we return, we return safe and grounded for our children. This is really such an important teaching. And Lisa, you by far are not alone. I know every parent out there or caretaker of any children can really resonate with the power of this teaching. So thank you for calling in with your question. I also noticed that you said um, your low emotional vibration of sadness were the words that you used. Now, when we're experiencing this sadness from our inner child, it's important to witness this without judgment. We talked on, about this in the previous question from Sarah. So a lot of these emotions are going to come up, right? That there is this low vibration feeling or this sadness, this dull feeling that's going to come up and we need to not judge it. We need to just be witness to it. So allowing all those emotions to be. We might have days where we're feeling really down or we're feeling really sad. And as we mentioned in the previous question, that's actually our inner child grieving. That low vibration of sadness or that low emotional feeling is actually your inner child grieving. So how do you care for yourself when that happens? How do you care for that inner child that's grieving inside? What do you do in that present moment as an adult? You simply allow it. You allow that grieving to happen. You allow the sadness to be there and those emotions to come up. This is a place for you to then act as your own wise, loving inner parent and hold the space for that inner child to release this grief. So like Nicole's saying, your children are sponges. They're watching and going to mimic what you do. So it's not to go to them in that moment. It's to look to you and to look to the inner child in you and caretake that. Allow that grief to happen and nurture yourself in the moment your children are watching and will mimic the same in themselves. 
Absolutely, Jenna. I just want to reiterate the impact that we have as parents is far greater in what we're doing, not in what we say. Um, so this is why, you know, when we when we speak of inner child work really does highlight the importance for those of us out there with children. Reparenting our own inner child is often where the work begins, how we're modeling, showing up for that little self in all of its needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual, really will have a far greater impact than saying the right thing or instructing the right thing for our children. It's really what are we doing, which brings us to the reality. Inner child work is a journey, a journey that evolves as we grow and as we change. Inner child work forms the basis for all of our relationships because it forms the basis for the relationship we have with ourselves first. So beginning the journey to reparent our inner child has the impact on the world around us, on our children, on our loved ones, and if you ask Jenna and I, on the society at large. So we begin to create change when we change, when we show up differently, whether it's for our children, for our partners, for our family, or for our society. Next episode, we're going to explore the ego, the voice essentially often coming from our inner child and all of its experiences that many of us are filtering the world through even as adults. If you're enjoying these episodes, we'd love to hear your feedback and have you share a review on our Apple podcast page. Thank you for joining us for this episode of How to Do the Work Masterclass. Thank you.